Hi, welcome to Perspectives, a podcast where we highlight the voices of women of color at Harvard. For our first episode, we interviewed Kai the Jesus. Keep listening to hear their story. First, could you just introduce yourself, like your name, uh, maybe where you're from, and your concentration and year? Yeah, um, so I'm Kai DeJesus. Um, I, hmm, oh, I take she or they pronouns. Um, my family is from the Philippines. I was born in Rhode Island, but I grew up in upstate New York, outside Rochester. Um, my family now lives in rural Massachusetts, um, and I am planning on a joint concentration between WGS and sociology, um, and hoping to do a secondary in ethnicity, migration, and rights. Um, I am technically, I guess, class of 24, but I was social class of 23, and then um, and then I took a took a leave for a year. So class of 2024, unless I drop out because college sucks. Definitely feel that. <laughs> okay. Um, Alexandra, do you want to go ahead and um, say what you want to say next? Um, sure. One second. Um, or you can just go ahead. I can follow up. All right. Cool. Um, So first, Kai, could you explain the situation regarding Arthur Kleinman and the general education course 1093, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Cares? To the best of your ability, just um, summarize um, your perspective on the situation. Sure. Um, Well, I think basically it's a, so for context, it's a class on like global health and like medical anthropology. So we were talking about uh, like colonial structures of public, of global health and things like that. And Professor Kleinman made some comment about how he thinks Frantz Fanon is a great thinker, except for the whole part of his doctrine that's like kill all white people um, for liberation or something along those lines, what he said. And I raised my hand and I was kind of like, well, I'm not saying that we should kill all white people because I don't believe that. But like, I don't think it's totally out of the, I don't think we should totally dismiss the idea of excluding white people from some liberation spaces for the safety of those inside them. Um, And so there became a little back and forth. One of the other professors, Dr. Salman Khashoggi, kind of interjected to kind of bring in Gandhi and think that, oh, well, you know, Gandhi tried to do that and alienate himself from the Black South Africans and it didn't work. And eventually he realized he had to work with the Black South Africans. And I remember my answer being something along the lines of, Well, I guess my answer to that is, first off, Gandhi was a rapist, so I don't really consider him a very good person. Um, But second off, even if that was what happened, which it isn't, but I I was not thinking it in a moment. And in reality, Gandhi was also 
wildly racist and hated all the black South Africans. But like, <laughs> um, you know, I, I said like, even if that was true, that's about solidarity between oppressed peoples, not between the oppressed and the oppressor, right? And I said, at the end of the day, the white body is still the supreme standard by which all people's humanities is measured, um, which isn't a very controversial statement. I'm, I'm just saying that oh, white people have privilege. Like, I, I don't, like, there, it's not a controversial statement. And um, I may or may not have said somewhere in there about how I, I may have quoted Elijah Muhammad and said that the white man is the blue-eyed, blonde-headed devil or something like that. But to be fair, like it's in the context of colonization, right? Like if it was not for the white man, there would not have been colonization. <laughs> like, um, and so I, I think it was a fair thing to bring up, especially when I was quoting it, right? Um, Dr. Kleinman got really defensive and his, he answered that, well, you know, the white body isn't the supreme standard everywhere. Like for example, in China, it like the white body is no longer the supreme standard, which if you know Chinese is not true because like even like packed into like the ideas of beauty are like ideas of whiteness within the Chinese language itself. But, um, you know, he gets to say whatever he wants because he has tenure and has been, has like five decades of research on China as a white man who came to China to research the people of China. Anyways, um, he said, you know, in fact, so I had brought up being a trans woman at some point. Um, he argues that I said it in the video itself. Apparently I did. Um, I don't really recall, but like I was basically just, you know, if I did, it was kind of to say, look, I know what I'm talking about. I'm a brown trans woman. Like I, I think I can tell you a little bit more about white supremacy than you can, kind of, right? And he had said, you know, and like you as a trans woman in China would be persecuted, and like they would take pictures of you. And um, I think the the last thing he said was, in fact, if we went to some of the more rural areas, you'd probably be killed. Um, and that was just kind of part of it and then and people and then he started kind of shutting down the conversation like okay if anyone wants to stay to ask more questions like you can stay but it's like 115 so you can go now um and so I I left because I didn't have the energy to to stay there anymore right like I've just argued um I left and Kind of, I wrote up a report and I got in touch with um, the Crimson Reporter who wrote the piece for, I don't know if you remember from, I don't know if you were already in, in Harvard Spaces last year, but Gary Erden from the Anthropology Department last year, um, there was this whole like case in the Anthropology Department about sexual misconduct and it being covered up and like harassment by like faculty of research assistants and it was a whole thing. Um, and the author of that Crimson article I thought might be willing to, to write a story about what happened. And so I reached out to him, I sent him my complaint and sent Title IX my complaint. September 16, I was kind of going back and forth with the, the head TF and I was kind of asking for the like chance to see the video. Um, 
an actual apology from Dr. Kleinman because he never gave me one. He said like he like sent the message to the to the class saying that like he regrets like clumsy word choice or something like that. Like he he um, actually specifically said it wasn't transphobia um, as a cis man, which is really interesting. Um, <laughs> it, it, Interesting is a word I'll use whenever I want to actually cuss him out. Um, <laughs> um, but ultimately what happened is I didn't get any of my requests. I was not allowed to see the video. Um, and ultimately when they did post a video, because they post the videos for every class, um, they cut out that part um, where, where that happened. Um, I never received an actual apology from Dr. Kleinman. Um, and was never reached out to him personally, reached out to, reached out to by him personally, um, only through the head TF. And I wasn't going to be given a chance to speak in class. And so September 17 comes along and that's a Thursday, right? So this class met Tuesday, Thursday. Um, and I kind of, Dr. Kleinman reads out the same bullshit apology that he, you know, I sincerely regret my clumsy word choice or some bullshit like that, which is like what they always do, right? Because they don't want to actually admit that they did anything wrong because sometimes they don't think they did anything wrong and sometimes they are okay with doing something wrong to the people who no one cares about, right? Because like at the end of the day, um, he knows that he has the power. Like he knows that he's a tenured professor with like five decades of experience and I'm a brown, trans, dyke, disabled person who's like a first year um, and, and like very few people are going to defend, right? And so the class starts, Dr. Kashavji starts, he's going to give a talk on coloniality, fun, like of, of all things. Um, Dr. Kashavji is a one person of color on the head faculty. Um, and, you know, he starts and I kind of, after that, that apology, I wrote in the group chat, the Zoom chat, that like I wanted a chance to speak and like multiple students backed me up, maybe like six or seven. Um, and Dr. Kajabji just launched in his lecture, like he, like no one was like allowing me to speak. So I unmuted myself and like spoke anyway. And I was like, I don't think it's cool for you guys to like silence me when, um, and like only give like, the person who said that thing the chance to speak and not give me a chance to speak and I was like and Dr. then I got muted and Dr. Shaji was like I'm not silencing you I'm just trying to get on with the lecture and so I unmuted myself and I was like you literally just muted me so you are silencing me and I just like kind of gave my speech um which I the night before I was like really pissed so I wrote up an outline of theory of like anthropological theory to and like sociological theory to basically call him dumb like in front of the class like to try and make him look stupid um and so like the finishing touch was the last theory I used was one of his own theories that I used against him like a theory that he developed and founded um I was like okay like you wrote this but you don't believe it apparently <laughs> like um and that was that was kind of that like things went on the the video cut that part out so no one like you, you can't see that the videos are still available within like faculty but they refuse to release it um 
and ultimately, like, you know, the, there's a Crimson article and I also reached out to Title IX. Um, Title IX told me that it wasn't objectively severe or persistent, and so they couldn't. So, like, the way Title IX investigations work, um, well, first off, Title IX always protects the university. Um, that's what Title IX is there for. It's mainly there so that, like, when people make accusations, they don't go to the police. They instead go to, the, like, internal, and they don't go to the press. They go to the internal. Um, and so that keeps them, like, that allows them to keep things under wraps. Um, not that I believe in police, but that's, that's another thing. Um, and so I guess Title IX, basically, the first step of a Title IX investigation process is not even an investigation. It's did what, like, did what happened count as a violation of policy? Um, if everything that happened, everything happened exactly how you said it happened, is it like wrong? Um, and you know, they came to the conclusion that no, um, it wasn't because it only happened once because of the policies of intellectual free speech that they have. And because I, because they gave me a chance to talk apparently because they said like, you can stay if you still have questions and I left. Um, so I think at that point, um, I was finishing up my interviews with uh, James Bacallus, who's the author of the Crimson article, um, and just kind of trying to figure out like where to go from there. I kind of decided that at that point, like I was done. Um, you know, I think like like you can sue or whatever, I guess. But um, at that point, like it's. I think I kind of just accepted that like the university does not give a fuck about me. And I think I knew that before um, for some background last year, um, trigger warning for suicide. Um, last year I was in school until like early October um, and kind of like, there's a Boston straight pride last year, which was this whole thing where um, it was just a white supremacist rally that they disguised as like a street pride parade or whatever. And so I went to protest um, because I was already there. I had done pre-orientation um, and I got like violently assaulted by the cops and like arrested and put in solitary confinement. And I got back to like campus at like 1130 at night. And then a couple of days later, I get a call from my resident dean like, oh, like, are you okay? Like, you know, you can call like this. Like Emerson College's president flat out condemn the parade, right? Um, Harvard didn't care, right? So like one of Harvard's own students was put in solitary confinement and there wasn't a single thing on any Harvard social media. Um, and so like at that point I'm already realizing, oh, they don't really care. But it was when um, at the start of October, I my PTSD was really bad. I couldn't really sleep because like the dorm rooms remind me of like the cell that I was in, the solitary confinement cell that I was in because like like the the walls of like I was in Canada and the walls of like the Canada dorms are like those like brick like fake brick things that are like painted on and that's like exactly the type of like stuff that was in my cell and I was like counting the amount of bricks because I had nothing else to do. Um and so like I'm sitting there like starting to like break down slash want my mom and like counting the amount of bricks and so then I go to like go back to my dorm room and I'm like oh shit I can't sleep now 
Um, and I didn't really get a lot of support, I think, at the start of October. I had already had a history of mental illness, but at the start of October, I went to CAMS for the first time. Um, I had heard bad things about it, but I didn't know like how bad. Um, and I was kind of like, look, like I don't want a Harvard psychiatrist or therapist because I don't feel comfortable telling you guys the stuff that's going on. Um, like I can't trust you to be confidential about um, the type of organizing that I was doing. Um, and ultimately they referred me out to like three other psychs and didn't really ever reach out again um, until October 6 at, or October 7 at 2 a.m. I overdosed on Benadryl at the side of the Charles and the way the policy well first off um, Harvard police were the first ones to get to me not EMTs and no EMTs ever showed up to see me until like 30 or 40 minutes later um, apparently like a range of things happened, including like me. At the time, I didn't pass, like, um, and so I apparently the cops were misgendering me, and my friend, who was also a brown woman, um, was saying like, like tried to correct them, and then they tried to like intimidate her while she was like holding her dying friend in her arms. It was it was a whole thing, um, but like the point is that like at that point I was like, okay, so Harvard doesn't care about me like even more than I thought before. Um, and then the real things happened, which is I was trying to get back in. And most people, like most colleges, after you go to, like I went to the ICU, I survived, obviously. I went to a psychiatric hospital after. Um, and most colleges let you come back. Um, and so like, that's what I was doing. I was like working on essays. Um, I was doing readings while I was in psych, like in the psych inpatient ward. Like I was getting ready to come back. And Harvard was basically like, no. Um, and I did some research and I realized that it's how they artificially deflate their suicide statistics. So if anyone seems at risk, they immediately send you away because if you die while you're on leave or off campus, they don't have to count it as a suicide. But because I was on like Harvard Business School property, I think, um, they would have had to count it. And so like all of that is like, that's the background I have with the university. I was also doing like Harvard Prison Day Investment work. Um, I wrote the press statement that, that we released when we sued Harvard. Um, and so like, there's just like a lot of things that were going on where the institution already had it kind of out for me. But, so I didn't really think that Title IX was going to do anything for me. Um, but I really only did it because I knew that, you know, with the victim blaming, like, culture of like like this harm culture that exists this like rape culture that exists it's always like asking the survivor what happened and like it's always like oh well like did you say something wrong did you do this wrong did you act this way and like I'm also a survivor of rape and so like I'm kind of used to like people not believing me um I don't know like <laughs> my one of my exes called my rape a miscommunication. So I'm like, I'm used to like victim blaming culture. Um, and the, like, the reason why I went to report was mainly that I was expecting that when this Crimson article came out, people were going to immediately be asking like, you know, why didn't she report? And why didn't she come forward earlier? And why didn't she do this? And why didn't she do that? So I decided I was just gonna cover my ass and, and get that done. Um, 
So I, you know, I did it, which was like really re-traumatizing writing. Like I wrote like multiple pages on it. And um, I just, I think that, you know, at this point, I knew that the Title IX ruling was going to go against me. I think Dr. Kleinman has so many publications that he's like, like so many things that he's been published in. Um, it's kind of like world renowned. Like you go to the Wikipedia articles on like medical anthropology and you'll find his name there. Like this guy is like, um, he makes a lot of money for the university basically um, with like prestige and things like that. And also personally he makes a lot of money because um, depending on like statistics that like depending on what statistics you go off like Harvard tenured professors get like on the low end like 200k a year um, like in dollars <laughs> um, so they're they're doing well right and and I did not I did not expect to have really anyone on my side I think um, I was really lucky to have peers in that class who cared about me um, who are mainly also women of color um, talking to, you know, the, who, who are willing to talk to the reporter, talk to the talk to Title IX, um, and kind of like offered me like help. And I was just kind of like, look, like I'm in the class. I was in the class because I was in it last year and I had already written one of the essays and they said they were going to keep the grade. So I kind of decided there was no point in dropping it. Um, I'm also like a stubborn, like hard ass, like, and I just did not, I wasn't going to back down. I was kind of, um, I actually just submitted the final for that couple, like a week ago. And the final that I wrote was about transness. Um, I wrote about a new model of dysphoria, which is like a, it's a whole, it's like a new social theory that aims to explain um, gender dysphoria, not as hatred of self, but as hatred via society and like instead of an incongruence between mind and body a like refusal of by society of like one's right to like realize a self and like um express oneself in the way that like they they exist as um and like i i just like i i thought like i i um i kind of i just didn't I didn't, I felt like it would be backing down if I left the class. So I stuck with the class. Um, and I mean, I, I guess we'll see. I mean, <laughs> I was doing pretty well. Um, and like TFs, I mean, TFs do all of the work anyway. Like the profs are there to do their research and go. They teach you because they're required to. None of them actually care about us except for like the choice few that we can find within the academy um, who are like willing to like, take people under their wing, you know what I mean? Um, which actually I'm currently looking for right now because I'm gonna make, um, I wanna make that into an independent research project and run a qualitative study. Um, and so you need a faculty advisor to get funding and things like that. But the point is, I think that, um, you know, it's just one of those times when you are reminded that, you know, to the academy, to Harvard, to these universities, you are an ant. Um, you know, we as students are here mainly as marketing, right? So students, they need us more than we need them, um, but they still kind of, all they really see us as is advertising. It's only a fraction of their, their um, yearly income that comes from our tuitions. It's mainly from endowments, 
from um, specific donations from and like et cetera, et cetera, right? It's from their investments and how they own a third of Cambridge, all of these things, like they're not making their main income from us paying them. They're making their main income from saying, look at all these amazing students we have. Look at this person who wrote a book and this person who started a company and this person who's now like a senator. Like, look at all of these people that come here. Um, you know, support us, send your kids here, especially you who are rich and are willing to donate to get your kid in. Um, and, and like, that's really what we're there for, right? We're not there because they want to teach us. We're there because they want to milk us. They want to exploit us. Um, we are just a, a small cog in their like income creation machine. Um, and I think that that's going to be present in, in the academy in general. Um, I don't believe in universities. Uh, I believe that I've learned a lot more from my peers than I've ever learned from any of these like formal classes. Um, and I think that I learned more from my one afternoon in, in jail with in a holding cell than I did from my time at Harvard. Um, there's like, you don't, there's just very, you know, the, the academy is here to reproduce knowledge. It's here to have professors see us as vessels to be like, to pour knowledge into so that we can maintain the status quo. But they don't want us to be creating new things. Like they don't want us to create new knowledge or, you know, as much as they want to like have creative students, what they really mean is how can, like, can you find a way to make more money off of this? Um, and I think at the end of the day, like that's what they will always care about. Um, and that's not to say that you know, I'm going to leave because I think that I can gain a lot from my peers here. And, you know, the university has a lot of resources that we can, that we can steal. Um, I think it's how we should be framing it. Like, you know, I, I think, um, like my motto is scam daddy Harvard. Like, let's, like, let's do what we can to I, they they have so much money they're not gonna miss it right like we can like get a like if we get a couple thousand dollar grants like for them it's a drop in a bucket like they won't even notice if there's two thousand dollars gone they've got 41 billion dollars um so i think just recognizing that and recognizing like how can we use our our privilege and our time at harvard to take from it and and redistribute it to people who like actually need it yeah, I definitely agree with you. I um, I organize for fossil fuel divest, and so we're trying to steal from them. Ah, that's real. <laughs> um, but also, um, Alexandria and I are in a class um, called Gen Ed Eleven Thirty. Um, it's the class that we're doing this podcast for right now, um, and it's about um, Black Power, radical feminism, and gay liberation. And um, I think it's one of the few classes, at least um, one of the few that I've heard of so far where the professor like genuinely cares about us both the professor mm -hmm. and pf um, michael bronsky's a professor and um jared fox i would i would give a vital organ to michael bronsky if he needed it <laughs> yes not a vital organ <laughs> like, I, I love michael and jared is the tf is absolutely amazing but please continue i just thought that interjection would be great <laughs> subject matter as well it's super important um and interesting and we have like creative freedom with um this project as well like they didn't tell us to make a podcast they just told us to do a project just do a project and so mm. 
Um, I think that's a class that would interest you, especially with your um, the intended concentrations of like WGS and um, um, sociology and um, ethnicity and migration. I think like those all tie in really well. And there's a lot of people who are um, joint concentrating in WGS who are in our class right now. So I think that's something you definitely enjoy. Yeah, not to be like a further plug, but Bronski's also like in the WGS department. So he's really awesome. Um, another class that I found like the teachers really, really invested is um, Gov90 AD. It's like, on a, it's a class on women in leadership. And the, the, um, she's not a professor per se. She's like, like technically the class is listed under Soroka, but um, Anna Hopper teaches it. And she's just super, she's super invested with all of us. It's a super small class. If you're looking for something else, I'd also recommend it. Wow, I didn't mean for this to be like a plug for classes, but I was like, I just like really want to acknowledge how much I love and appreciate Michael Bronski, Jared, and Anna. Like, anyway. If we're stealing their money for tuition, we should steal it for these classes that we would actually enjoy and learn valuable things in so I just wanted to put that out there but Alexandria yeah. go ahead no and like I first want to thank you for coming on um I know talking about these things is not easy and talking about them on record is even harder um so I want to thank you for coming on um the purpose of this podcast and really of the class is just kind of like dive, dive into these issues um to not only provide like what are tactical tactical organizing strategies we use but also like the kind of like underpinnings of them like why they matter and so the point of our podcast is to elevate voices of women of color and um really look at the intersections of how we experience um oppression so i just we you can go in whatever direction you want to because i think you have like two really important facets to go down with um how you've ex- how what your experience at harvard has given you um but i just kind of wanted to touch on you know this is really a cliche question but like how how do you you feel like i know you've expressed like personal feelings about it but like how do you feel would what would be the best resolution for you and what do you think like the implications of these experiences are for you and your peers Sure, I think, okay, on like a, on a really big level, on like a, you know, if I could have my dream world, Harvard would be in ruins. Like, I don't believe that these colleges should exist. Like we make, like the knowledge that we can co-create ourselves is much more important and much more valuable than anything these institutions can create. Um, you know, I think that I learned, again, like when I say I learned a lot in my holding cell, I mean like I learned about what it means to care about another human being. I learned about what it's like to be, you know, to to feel incarceration in certain ways. I learned what it's like to feel a cop on my back, right? Um, and so like, I was wearing a sports bra and like booty shorts at this protest, which it's a terrible idea. If you ever go to, I had never been in a frontline protest. So if you ever go to a frontline protest, don't blame yourself. Don't, don't I do that. It. But like, if you're in a frontline protest, wear long sleeves, wear jeans, um, like wear something that like covers your skin. Um, I learned that because the next, the later protests that I went to, I got tear gassed. But that's all another thing. 
Um, the reason why I bring this up is because I was sitting in that holding cell. So before you get booked and put in your cell, which is like where I went to solitary confinement, you sit in a holding cell with a bunch of other people um, who were also arrested that day. And I met an eighth grade science teacher who was protesting, um, who got arrested. And she had like this really thin shirt that she was wearing. And she, we were talking and she could see I was like shivering. And she like offered to take her shirt off and like give it to me. And like, we would like exchange it every few minutes so that like I, I wouldn't get like, I wouldn't like freeze. Um, and like a bunch of us need to like pee. And, and we told the officer and they were like, you should have thought of that before you got arrested. Um, and so we kind of like, we were getting ready to like surround the people who needed to piss so they could just like piss in the drain and have privacy. Um, like there were like all of these things happening. Oh, and then like immediately after I got out of, of my cell and they, they let me out, um, the people who paid for my bail were the Massachusetts Bail Fund. Well, I didn't have a bail, but you have a bail fee. Um, and the Mass Bail Fund paid for mine. Um, and I, I walked out immediately to a community of people saying, do you need water? Do you need, um, do you need like a snack? Like here's a granola bar, like let me check your wrists because um, at protests, they don't give you metal handcuffs, they give you zip ties um, because it's cheaper, except like zip ties get tighter when you move and so they can cause nerve damage. And so um, a street medic came and checked my hands to make sure that I had feeling and uh, everything was okay. Um, and, and all of these things. And I think that's when I started realizing that we don't need these institutions because they're not, like it isn't Harvard that gives these places value, right? Or gives us the knowledge. Like the knowledge we can co-create is much more important um, than, than any knowledge they can give to us as though we are empty vessels, right? Um, and so, you know, I've, a great text for that if you ever have time and are deeply bored because it's a really dry, impossible text to get through, but very important um, is Pedagogy of the Oppressed uh, by Paulo Freire. Um, and just, you know, I guess like to tie it back to this event particularly, like what I officially want is, you know, I believe we can make groups of co-creation of knowledge that don't have to be universities. Um, and I don't believe that these like universities that really only exist to protect class stratification should exist. Um, because at the end of the day, like you spend, like I have learned a lot more from my coworkers at, when I worked in a restaurant as a waitress, um, from my benchmate when I worked as an assembly line worker in a factory. Um, I learned much more from those people than I am learning from professors. Um, than I learned from like teachers in general. You, like I think that it's important to recognize that, like that we don't need these institutions except for the fact that no one will care what we have to say without a degree, right? Like I can leave right now, uh, but I, no matter how much I write, like I've self-published a book, but no one is going to read it unless people know who I am. And no one's gonna know who I am if I don't like keep doing this. Um, because like otherwise like you know like if I was a white man who had connections and could just be like hey like you know an agent right and they'd be like yeah like 
let me hook you up. And like our mutual friend sets up an interview. We talk, this person buys my book. Then um, the agent knows an editor and immediately like we're publishing, right? Um, I have a business idea. Like I reach out to my friend who knows a banker. Immediately I get a loan and then suddenly like, like that, you're, you're done, you're ready. You can drop out. Like, I think people forget that like, like these famous college dropouts, like Bill Gates, like Steve Jobs, um, they were white men. Like, I can't afford to be, to drop out. Like, no, like, and I think that, um, like, that's why, like, in the current system, like, I'm here, even though I don't believe in it. Um, on, like, a more individual level, like, he should have issued an intentional apology. It wasn't that hard to be, to say, I shouldn't have told you that you would be murdered in China in front of a 200 person class. Like, and I'm sorry, like, but, you know, um, as we all know, all of these professors typically have, you know, the, the ratio between their egos and their penis size is exponential. Um, so, you know, they're, they're always trying to overcompensate, right? So, um, sorry, Dr. Kleinman, I, I, I know. No, not really, sorry. Like, you have a tiny dick. Deal with it. Um, anyways. <laughs> Um, if you can't tell, I don't really have respect for the Academy or this man. Um, but <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that he should have had the balls to apologize. I think it takes more courage um, to apologize than it does to fight back. Um, and I think, frankly, he is a whiny coward who can't handle that he was showed up by a 19-year-old. Um, like, they just... You know, like, um, I think second, the video should not have been cut. Like, it happened. Um, you can't erase the fact that it happened. You can't bury it under a bunch of red tape. It happened. It should be clear that it happened. Um, and finally, like, I should have been g given a chance to address the class. You know, statistically, in a 200-person class, there's definitely other trans and gender non-conforming people in the class. And that's the main reason why I wanted to address it. I wanted to, to be able to tell them, hey, you're not alone. What was said was not right. And like, I'm here for you if you need to talk. Um, like as it is right now, I have multiple people who call me mom because like they came out, um, I'm also a lesbian. So like they came out later um, or, you know, they're just coming out now or um, their mom doesn't call them their chosen name or whatever, any number of things where I'm like the mom to a lot of like baby, baby gays for, for the lack of a better term. Um, and I think that, you know, for me, um, that was what was most important. So I think like, I guess at the end of the day, it's recognizing these power disparities um, and, you know, having the courage to challenge them. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I guess like what it comes down to is I don't believe that there should be a professor at all, right? Like I, I don't believe in that type of hierarchical teaching structure, um, mainly again, because the TFs are doing most of the work. Um, so the TFs who have to unionize to get basic benefits are doing most of the work. And then, um, I just, I think that, you know, with that knowledge, like what I, 
in a perfect world, Harvard's gone. In a semi-perfect world, um, Dr. Kleinman is terminated without without benefits, without a without like a retirement package, et cetera, et cetera. Like he's gone. Um, in a less perfect world, he's at least like publicly reprimanded by the department. But at the end of the day, this is a teacher at Harvard Medical School and a teacher within the Department of Anthropology, which anthropology is founded on sciences like phrenology. Like it, it is, it is colonialism, right? These these schools of thought are created were originally created to justify racism, right? Like a lot of early sociology and anthropology are about justifying colonization and justifying slavery and justifying all of these things that should never have been justified. Um, and so I think ultimately, you know, now what, what I want to see from it now, I don't believe that Title IX or the university cares enough to do anything about it. And so I think what I would want to see instead um, is like a continued like dismantling of these power structures, right? And I think that um, no one should have the power to do these things. Um, and I think like it's important to, to see like the power disparities that exist between professors and the students and specifically regarding grading, um, you know, like this idea of assessment in, in this like very like quantitative way. Um, it just, it allows a, like teachers so much power over their students um, that, you know, the, like the university will present it as like free and fair speech or things like that, right? But at the end of the day, the, the, like the difference between free speech for Professor Arthur Kleinman and free speech for me is if I say in that class what I really want to say about Dr. Kleinman, I will get like kicked out of the class or I will get like my grade docked or I will get sent to the ad board, right? But if he says that to me, nothing happened and like that's ultimately where like where the line is is, is this idea that um like who do we care about like who is a priority in this institution and the answer is not the students the answer is who writes who gets published the most um who who made the best business who made the most money whose kids are going to donate enough um and it's never the students and definitely never the students of color um, so, yeah, I, I think just like recognizing that the system, I think like, if anything, the, the biggest takeaway that I have out of it, um, that I want people to have out of it is that the system isn't broken. The system is working exactly how it was designed um, and exactly how it was intended to work. Um, like these systems, institutions like Harvard have always been here to maintain you know I mean like at the start of at the start of the time a lot of it was like trying to teach like indigenous people how to assimilate and um, teaching missionaries who were going into these indigenous communities and converting people um, and you know there were like even now um, you have like pictures um, like I mean we see with like the Free Renty Coalition, like you still have pictures of slaves, for example, that Harvard owns. Um, and like a lot of the early research was done in like really brutal, gruesome ways. And 
recognizing that, recognizing that these structures are here to maintain white supremacy, are here to like maintain class stratification. Like the point of Harvard is not to teach. The point of Harvard is not veritas. There is no truth we're searching for at Harvard. Harvard's like main and sole purpose is to maintain a status quo, whether that means like maintaining capitalism, whether that means defending white supremacy, um, whether that means protecting the state and, and the United States as a, as a concept, like it will always do that. Um, and that's not supposed to be a nihilist view, but it's instead to realize that this isn't where we're going to get our, our like, our liberation, our, our education. And which is why, like, I think it's so important for us to, to listen to like our, our classmates um, and, and really hear what they have to say um, especially those who are not being listened to, right? So like, I don't believe that anyone is voiceless. Everyone has a voice, just some people get listened to more than others. Um, and so I think recognizing that it's like, we have to all make a conscious effort to strive to not be what Harvard wants us to be. We have to make a concerted effort not to become that like the like the perfect student because the perfect student the perfect graduate of harvard will always maintain these like these systems of oppression and so if we're not constantly fighting back against it in our minds we won't be able to break out of it and and we'll fall too quickly which is why you see um you know people who who started out not like people who started out just saying that you know they were all for liberation or whatever leaving Harvard to go to like consult for McKinsey right because that's what Harvard wants us to do like Harvard is slowly trying to get us to do things like that to sell out um so yeah I, I think it's just important to recognize that like Harvard is not your friend um and the people who and and the people who are like are not are are like the people around you and specifically the people around you who are getting crap from professors who are having to fight to stay who are um you know trying to figure out whether to take the five thousand dollar stipend or go to campus like all of these things um it's just like like we have to like i think we have to recognize that it's the people that harvard cares about the least that we will learn the most from and that we will that we will be able to fight for the most liberation with. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, one second. I think we have just one more question. Mm-hmm. So um, you talked a lot about how like experiences with other women of color, um, especially like in supporting you and during the two situations you described, um, how you learned a lot more from them and other peers than you do from your professors. And so I was wondering if you also got support from white women or men of color or non-binary individuals of colors. Just um, do you think that people who don't have an intersection of identities, just um, one identity, but one oppressed identity, do you think they would react in the same way that those women of color did when they supported you? And if not, why? And how do you think these people should react? I'm definitely, I definitely felt the most solidarity with other queer and trans people of color. Um, I think like 
pretty much all of my friends are queer women or non-binary people um and i don't really have a lot of white friends um and i think it's just like there's something different when you get it like when i can when i can look at someone and just say one thing and have them know exactly what it's like um like no one except black and brown trans women will ever recognize how like terrifying it is to have a life expectancy of 35 like um no one else will get that feeling of shit i have to do something now because i'm going to die soon so like i have to get my shit done now i have to make my contributions to the world now because someone's going to kill me um like no one gets like no one like no one like these people will understand completely like smoking a cigarette having someone say like what are you doing like you're ruining your lungs and your first thought is well i'm going to be shot before i get lung cancer so why does it matter um like no one gets that except the people experiencing it and i think um i think the people who i like received the most support from outside of that are still like cis women of color i think i feel more solidarity with cis women of color especially like queer cis women of color than i typically do with like white trans women for example um and that isn't because like i don't believe we have similar experiences but there's something different at stake right so like um white trans women don't face the same rate of violence that my people do um and that's just a fact and so it's just very different experiences and so i think that like a single identity can help but like i think ultimately i think one is that people need to recognize their positionality so um like like that's that's a first step is that people need to recognize that oh like i am privileged like i i grew up um like financially stable and that's like that's a big privilege i didn't i didn't have to worry about like worry about that as much but um and like recognizing that and recognizing oh like then maybe i have things to learn about class right like if you're a white person maybe you have things to learn about race if you're cis maybe you have things to learn about gender as a social construct like all of these things um and i think that that yeah, that's the first step i think the second step is amplifying the voices of people who are already doing the work um so like there's a lot of typically like white activists on instagram who you know will put like blm in their in their bios or in their captions but not actually do anything about it um and i think like recognizing that i mean for example um in i think it was seattle where there is that picture of a white woman who like sat down in front of the cops naked or whatever during one of the protests and it, it was like this really famous picture um if like a woman of color did that they would have shot her like <laughs> um and and recognizing that that like positionality exists right um and so i think like once that positionality is recognized like that that has to be used and so um you know that doesn't mean that like white people or like should be 
being like, oh, this is what racism is, right? But like, if like, like people are already doing the work. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions right now, I think is like, especially at Harvard, right? There's this huge like founder problem of like people who like, like you want to make the big new thing. Like you want to found something new. Um, that That is like a thing that like exists. And I think that, you know, we have to recognize that like, abolitionists have been doing this work for decades um and it isn't new like this is not the first year someone said the words acab like um and so like recognizing that like and getting like getting connected with those communities i think is important um and finally i just think that um like being there and like interfering in class and and in these institutions is important like showing up um you know if you're like i think for example like they're typically not not a ton of like white people at like ethnic studies rallies um and the thing is that like it's because a lot of times white people don't recognize how important that is like when your history is taught as a core subject in like fifth grade and like the like people of color's history is like an elective that you can take like if you care about it like it just it doesn't right so like like ethnic studies and this idea of like us learning our own histories like um you know i can i can list off battles from the american revolution but it wasn't until a few years ago that I realized the most people who died in the Philippines from revolution were not the people who fought the Spanish, but the people who fought the US. Like, um, it wasn't until this year that I learned that the US intentionally starved my people and 200,000 to a million people died because they wanted us to die. Because if we, if enough of us died, we would surrender and let them like take us as like a Pacific strategic uh, base, right? And I think, all of these things um, just come back to what do you care about and and who do you care about, right? So like, is like are is like police brutality like your like your hobby to talk about, or like is police or are you like recognizing that like there are people in your class who have had someone slam their face to the concrete and like faces as life or death. Like, um, like the Associated Press published a photo with my face on the ground. Andy Ngo, who has like 400,000 followers, tweeted my name, my hometown, and my age when I got arrested. Um, and the only reason why I didn't get more death threats than I already had in my hometown, which the real reason why I live in rural Massachusetts now, or my family does, is because we had to run away from my hometown where I had active death threats and my house was vandalized twice and I survived attempted murder. Um, like the only reason why I don't have like new death threats now is because fascists are too stupid to recognize that legal names and like chosen names can be different sometimes. Um, and which is also part of the reason why I still haven't changed my name legally. But yeah, I think just like in general, just like recognize that these structures are made to be like this, are intentionally made to be like this, are intentionally created to oppress and they're not here to help us. Like, I don't care how many like emails Bacow sends about like our commitment to diversity or some shit. Like 
Harvard is invested in the prison industrial complex and in fossil fuels and like is actively killing people. And like, I think that until like people start recognizing that these are people's lived experiences, like it will continue to be a hobby for people, right? Like I think that um, like one, for example, for me, one thing that I, one like struggle I've had a lot of times with like environmentalist movements is that a lot of times it's always talking about like, oh, our kids, like in 10 years, right? Um, except like in my, like, in yeah, exactly. In my home country, like there are islands being sunk. Like I have, I know like of, of towns near where my parents live, where like people are now like learning, like doing school on the roof because their schools are underwater. Like, and, and I think that like people recognizing that these are lived experiences that are happening right now and today, like, same thing with the prison industrial complex like people look at harvard and they're like oh like they're invested in like private prisons and that's bad it's like no regardless of if it's private or public they're invested in like people who put humans in cages and like people are being put in cages people live in cages right now and people want to say slavery was abolished in in the like before 1900 like bullshit and like it's time for us to recognize that that these things are not just ambiguous ideas that that someone had. Like, this is not a hobby for the people who are experiencing it on a daily basis. Um, it's life or death, and and people who don't have that experience need to get that and need to need to really internalize that and do some shit about it. Thank you. Yes, I wanted to thank you so much. You brought so much insight and so many lived experiences and um, we really appreciate you telling your story and um, it can be a very touchy subject. Um, I definitely understand. And um, the fact that you um, so graciously <laughs> chose to, spoke to, to us or chose to speak to us and um, did it so well. And so you brought up so many important things um, I think everyone who listens to this podcast will definitely learn a lot of things and will be very appreciative of you for telling your story. Thank you. It was it was nice to... I've kind of spent most of the semester being reminded that like people in this institution really don't give a fuck about me. Um, and it's always nice to find someone who does. <laughs> um, so thank you guys. Um, it was really nice talking to you. Um, Good luck with the project. Let me know if um, you have any other questions, but yeah, it, it was nice to meet y'all.